This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. Green Day shoots the moon. Tom Petty gets to meet Elvis. Kid Rock does the most Kid Rock thing ever. Pearl Jam play their very first gig and John Lennon's piano gets a new home, then goes on tour. All that and much more in this week's Music Notes and More podcast for the week of October 20th. This week, back in 1976, the Led Zeppelin film, The Song Remains the Same, premiered in New York City. Now, the filming took place during the summer of 1973, during three nights of concerts at Madison Square Garden in New York. Why did it take three years to release? Well, a lot of problems cropped up in the planning stages and in the subsequent filming. Robert Plant and John Bonham, they wore exactly the same clothes to facilitate seamless editing of the film on all the nights that they filmed the concert footage. But John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page, well, they wore different sets of attire on some of the nights, which of course created continuity problems. If you see the movie or remember it, Page is seen wearing a different dragon suit in Rock and Roll and the Celebration Day remaster. And yes, he had a dragon suit. Cool. Now, during editing, they realized that there were crucial holes in the concert footage. It just wasn't all fitting together. So the entire show was recreated at Shepperton Studios in August of 1974. They built a mock-up of the Madison Square Garden stage so close-ups and distant footage of the band members could then be slipped into the live sequences which made up the bulk of the concert footage seen in the film. Yeah, fakers. Now, when it was agreed that the band would meet at the uh, studios for filming, Jones had recently cut his hair really short, so he had to wear a wig. So if you watch the song Remains the Same again, look for him wearing a wig. Unbelievable. Now, the song Remains the Same was finally completed by early 1976, 18 months behind schedule and way over budget. Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, later said, look, it was the most expensive home movie ever made. And Jimmy Page later said that it was not a great film, but there's no point in making excuses. It's just a reasonably honest statement of where we were at that particular time. When it finally premiered in 1976, they gave some money to charity. They raised $25,000 for the Save the Children Fund. Going back this week to 1977, Ronnie Van Zant, Steve Gaines, and Cassie Gaines from Leonard Skinnerd were all killed along with manager Dean Kilpatrick when their rented plane ran out of fuel and crashed into a densely wooded thicket in the middle of a swamp in Gillsburg, Mississippi. Now, the crash seriously injured the rest of the banded crew who were due to play at LSU that evening. Now, the accident came just three days after the release of their album Street Survivors. Now, following the crash and the ensuing press, Street Survivors became the band's second platinum album and reached number five on the U.S. album charts. The single What's Your Name reached number 13 on the singles charts in 1978. Now, the original cover sleeve for the Street Survivors album had featured a photograph of the band amid flames, with Steve Gaines nearly obscured by the fire. Now, Of course, out of respect for the deceased and at the request of Teresa Gaines, Steve's widow, MCA Records withdrew the original cover and replaced it with the album's back photo, a similar image of the band against a simple black background. 
Now, 30 years later, for the deluxe CD version of Street Survivors, the original Flames cover was restored. It was this week back in 1995 that Green Day singer Billy Joe Armstrong, who was 23 at the time, was arrested and fined 140 bucks after he mooned the audience during a gig in Milwaukee. Now, Billy Joe Armstrong would moon the crowd after gigs all the time if he thought the audience wasn't that great. Apparently, he didn't think the 6,000 people in Milwaukee that night gave it their all, so he turned around, pulled on his pants, and mooned them. Now, normally the cops wouldn't really care, but it was Green Day, and there was a young crowd with a bunch of kids in the audience, so the cops had to do something, and they arrested Billy Joe Armstrong as he was walking to get his limousine to leave for the evening. The great Tom Petty was born this week in 1950. Of course, you know him as the frontman of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who's also a founding member of the late 1980s supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys. And of course, his first band was called Mud Crutch. Petty also released a bunch of solo albums, and throughout his career, he has sold over 60 million albums. His love of rock and roll officially began in the summer of 1961. He was just 11 years old. And guess who he got to meet? He met none other than Elvis Presley. Elvis was shooting a film near where Tom Petty grew up, so hundreds of fans were screaming as the king pulled up in a line of white Cadillacs. Tom Petty says, quote, He stepped out radiant as an angel. He seemed to glow and walk above the ground. It was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. After that, I listened to Elvis records nonstop obsessively. And that's what kicked off my love of music. Tom Petty dropped out of high school at age 17 to join his first band, a southern rock group called Mud Crutch. Later on, when George Harrison first uh, formed the band called the Traveling Wilburys in the late 1980s, it included Harrison, Jeff Lynne of Electric Light Orchestra, Roy Orbison, and Bob Dylan. Now, as legend has it, the musicians went to Bob Dylan's home studio to record a B-side to their single called This Is Love. Harrison had accidentally left a guitar at Tom Petty's house, and when he went to retrieve it, he asked Tom Petty if he wanted to join the session. So the musicians had such a good time that they decided to record a full album. And the song they recorded that day, Handle With Care, became one of the biggest hits for the Traveling Wilburys. Tom Petty's 1989 album called Full Moon Fever, which has the hits Free Fallen, I Won't Back Down, and Running Down a Dream, almost didn't get released. You see, Tom Petty's label, MCA, thought it was going to be a huge flop. It wasn't going to be successful at all. But Tom Petty, he's not a quitter. He shows his legendary resilience by picking himself, dusting him off from the bad news, and he forged ahead. And by forging ahead, I mean he sat around and waited. That's right, he waited until the top regime at the record company had changed. He then went back and played the new regime, the same damn record, and they were overjoyed. It's released. It turned out to be an obvious huge hit. Now, Tom had a lot of ups and downs throughout his career, and he said, quote, you know, as you're coming up, you recognize song for song or album for album. He says, uh, what's changed these days is that the man who approaches me on the street is more or less thanking me for my body of work, the soundtrack to that person's life, as a lot of folks say. And that's a wonderful feeling. It's all an artist can ask. 
Tom Petty died in October of 2017. This week in 2007, Kid Rock and five members of his entourage were arrested after an argument with a man escalated into a fight in a, wait for it, Waffle House in Atlanta after a show. That's right, Kid Rock did the most Kid Rock thing you could possibly do. You see, there was a dude in the Waffle House enjoying some smothered and covered, and he recognized a girl with Kid Rock's party and exchanged words with her. And of course, at 5 a.m. in a Waffle House, things are going to escalate quickly. They did into a physical altercation between Kid Rock and the male customer. It, of course, moved outside to the parking lot. And at some point, the customer punched out a restaurant window. Kid Rock realized, I got to go. So he left in his tour bus and was stopped by the police about a mile down the road from the restaurant, taken into custody on a misdemeanor charge of simple battery. Now, the Waffle House customer was charged with criminal damage to property and other charges. Kid Rock was released from the county jail on bond. Kid Rock's crew must have kicked the guy's ass because he was treated at a hospital for some cuts and bruises and no one in Kid Rock's group was hospitalized. Now remember, as a good piece of advice, nothing good is going to happen at 5 a.m. at a Waffle House. This week back in 1966, the Beach Boys song Good Vibrations made its debut on the U.S. singles chart. Now it was written by Brian Wilson and Mike Love. The track was recorded over six weeks in four different Los Angeles studios at a cost of over $16,000. Remember, this is 1966. That's a lot of damn money. Now, the recording engineer would later say that the last take sounded exactly like the first take six months earlier. Either way, the record would reach number one on the U.S. charts in December of 1966. Back in 1969 this week, Led Zeppelin II was released. Now, that's the album with Whole Lot of Love, Thank You, Ramble On, and the others. Uh, the Jimmy Page-produced album, which was recorded over six months between four European and three American tours, peaked at number one in both the United Kingdom and the U.S., going to, on to sell over 12 million copies in the U.S. alone. Now, this album is now recognized by pretty much everybody as one of the greatest and most influential rock albums ever recorded. This week back in 1990, Pearl Jam played their first ever concert when they appeared at the off-ramp in Seattle. Now, Pearl Jam got their start when Stone Gossard, Jeff Ament, and Mike McCready recorded a demo tape, which they passed around to a bunch of friends. Well, one of those people who got his hands on the tape was a guy named Eddie Vedder. He was working part-time at a gas station in San Diego. Now, Vetter was compelled to write his own lyrics to the melodies and the music that the three guys had put on cassette. He recorded his lyrics, sang on the cassette, and sent the tape back up north to the guys who made the demo, who were blown away by what this unknown guy named Eddie Vetter had put together. Now, almost immediately, they call up Eddie Vedder and they get him a one-way ticket to Seattle. A week later, he was officially in the band. Now, at first, they called themselves Mookie Blaylock after the then New Jersey Nets point guard. They rehearsed and they played to about 300 people at the off-ramp in Seattle. Then they laid low for quite a while and then they opened for the band Soundgarden. Within a year, 
they would sign a record deal with Epic Records and begin working on their now classic album called 10. It was in 2000 this week that George Michael, yes, the guy from Wham, right? Yeah, he paid one and a half million dollars for the Steinway upright piano on which John Lennon wrote the song Imagine. Now, the piano wasn't perfect. It had a couple of burns from where Lennon left a cigarette burning. George Michael said, quote, I know when my fingers touch the keys of that Steinway, I will feel truly blessed. And parting with my money has never been much of a problem. Just ask my accountant. Now, George Michael outbid Robbie Williams and the Oasis brothers. George recorded a song on it, and then he had it put in a museum in England. Then later on, he ships the piano to the United States, and it ends up in New Orleans for a photo session in 2007 in hopes that the visit will heighten awareness of the plight of the hurricane-stricken city. Now, the city was still trying to recover from Hurricane Katrina at the time. The Brown Steinway upright piano was photographed in the lobby of the Ogden Museum of Southern Art and also at Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop Bar on Bourbon Street. That's right, it was there amongst all the drunk people. Its stop in New Orleans was part of a worldwide tour of sites where acts of violence have taken place and locations that capture the human spirit. George Michael wanted to honor those that lost their lives, those that were injured, and those whose lives were impacted forever by Hurricane Katrina. This week in 2017, American pianist and singer-songwriter Fats Domino died at age 89 at his home in Harvey, Louisiana after a long-term illness. Now, Fats Domino attracted national attention with his very first recording called The Fat Man. He made that song in late 1949 for Imperial Records. It's an early rock and roll record. Now, The Fat Man sold a million copies by 1953, and it is widely considered the first rock and roll record to achieve this feat. Domino had 35 records in the United States Billboard Top 40 over the years. 1964, the Rolling Stones appeared for the very first time on the Ed Sullivan Show from New York, performing Around and Round, and Time is on My Side. Well, a riot broke out in the studio, prompting Sullivan's infamous quote, I promise you they'll never be back on our show again. Well, Never say never, because the Rolling Stones went on to make five further appearances on Sullivan's show between 1965 and 1969. This week, back in 1995, Shannon Hoon, singer for Blind Melon, died of a cocaine overdose at the age of 28 in New Orleans. Blind Melon formed in 1990, and their hit singles, uh, No Rain, was released in the summer of 1993. Now, you remember the song, right? It had the B-girl video, the little kid in the bee costume jumping around everywhere. Yeah, that video was everywhere. Well, it made the band quite successful, and they toured for two years. Then things start to unravel. In 1993, Shannon Hoon ripped off his clothes and pissed on a fan at a show in Vancouver. In 1994, Blind Melon appeared at Woodstock 94, where Hoon, allegedly high on LSD, went on stage wearing his girlfriend's white dress. After taking a hiatus from touring, Blind Melon returned to the studio to record the album Soup in New Orleans. Soup was released in 1995. Also in 1995, Hoon and his girlfriend, they welcomed to the world a daughter. Now, before the birth of his daughter, Hoon entered rehab. 
in August of that year, Blind Melon planned to tour to support their album Soup. So Hoon allowed a drug counselor to accompany him on the road. Well, the counselor was unable to keep Shannon from relapsing, and he was fired days before Shannon Hoon's death. After a disappointing performance in Houston on October 20th, Hoon launched himself into an all-night drug binge. The next day, Saturday, October 21st, 1995, Blind Melon was scheduled to play a show in New Orleans at Tipitina's. Now, the band's sound engineer went to the tour bus to awaken Hoon for a sound check, but Hoon was unresponsive. An ambulance arrived and Hoon was pronounced dead at the scene at age 28. His death was attributed to a cocaine overdose. This week back in 1988, the Fantasy Records vs. John Fogarty case began. Fantasy claimed that Fogarty had plagiarized his own song, Run Through the Jungle, when he wrote The Old Man Down the Road. Yes, John Fogarty was being sued for stealing from himself. Here's what happened. Saul Zantz who owned CCR's old record label, Fantasy Records, also owned the copyright to run through the jungle. Zantz felt that the old man down the road was simply run through the jungle with different words. In other words, John Fogarty had plagiarized a John Fogarty song to which he didn't own the copyright. The case ended up before a jury in late 1988. Now, the two-week trial featured Fogarty taking the witness stand with a guitar in hand to explain that, yeah, the two songs may have sounded somewhat similar, but they were both variations on his signature swamp rock style. Simply put, of course, two John Fogarty songs sounded the same. This logic seemed pretty sound to the jury. It only took two hours of deliberation for the jury to determine that the two songs didn't meet the legal standard of being substantially similar that would have constituted copyright infringement. All right, yay, John Fogarty wins. Well, not really. You see, since Fogarty had successfully defended himself against Fantasy Records suit, he sought reimbursement for his attorney's fees. But yeah, no dice. You see, if the plaintiff, Fantasy, had been successful in its suit against Fogarty, the label would have been able to seek its lawyer fees from the musician. But since Fogarty had been a prevailing defendant, though, the court ruled that he could only seek fees if he could show that Fantasy's suit was frivolous and had been made in bad faith. Fantasy's suit may not have panned out, but it didn't fit those criteria. Well, this decision put John Fogarty in a pretty damn sticky spot. Now, sure, he had won the case, but check this out. He's now on the hook for over a million dollars in lawyer's fees. Whoa. So, Fogarty and his team didn't think this arrangement was very fair, so they appealed the decision. So, in 1993, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit shot down that appeal. Though, on the same grounds, the original suit had been neither frivolous nor brought in bad faith. After that failed appeal, the suit ended up in front of the Supreme Court. 
Fogarty's camp made the same damn argument that it made no sense to have a dual standard for plaintiffs and defendants seeking reimbursement for lawyers' fees under the Copyright Act of 1976. So, in March 1994, remember, this started way back in 1988, the Supreme Court issued a 9-0 decision in favor of Fogarty. Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist wrote that there was nothing in the Copyright Act of 1976 that implied that Congress wanted anything other than a level playing field when it came to awarding attorney's fees to the prevailing party. John Fogarty finally wins. The Music Notes and More podcast is written, produced, and voiced by me, Jason Ginty. Why? Because it's fun, and I dig doing it, and I hope you like listening to it. Subscribe to wherever it is you listen to this podcast, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all over the place. <laughs>